right, guys. So following up from last week, I want to focus again on isolation. If you get anything out of this podcast, you should feel a little bit more connected, right? So today's guest, we have the folks, Melissa and Lisa from the Adoption Connection. This is a group that you can join that's on Facebook and they offer courses and a bunch of other stuff, but for foster and adoptive parents so that you don't feel alone. I've been a member of this group. Thankfully, they let me in, even though I'm not a foster adoptive parent. Um, but I see people say, hey, I'm dealing with this specific behavior or how do I deal with this transition? And not only do you get to hear from Melissa and Lisa, who are very experienced adoptive parents, but you also get to hear from the rest of the group and the community. So this is a great way to tap in with other foster adoptive parents across the country. If you are a foster adoptive parent, this is helpful. If you're not, then this episode will help you realize what resources you can give to foster adoptive parents that you know. It can also help you understand kind of the world that these foster and adoptive parents are a part of. Now, I know on the podcast, we've started throwing out some names, you know, some theorists in this space, and I don't want this to get too clinical or people to get too confused, but you will continue to hear Dr. Karen Purvis's name. So if you haven't researched her yet, go ahead and Google her name. She's uh, the founder of the Empowered to Connect theories and the TBRI theories that we continue to talk about. And what's really cool is Lisa actually wrote a book. So there is The Connected Child, which Karen Purvis wrote years ago um, and is used all over in the trauma space today. And Lisa on the podcast today actually was with Karen and working with Karen on The Connected Parent all through the last years of Karen's life. So it was a labor of love in a long process, but even after Karen died, they were able to, with the help of her staff, get this book written. So it's coming out soon. Um, and, and Dr. Karen Purvis, if you don't know, you got to look her up because she's just so amazing in this space, really a trailblazer and she has empowered to connect trainings that happen all over the United States. You can stream them live at churches and, and people go to these events. So you can check out empowered to connect. If you want to get more involved, they, Melissa and Lisa talk about the empowered to connect and how they became trainers in that modality. And also Karen Purvis is the founder of TBRI, which we continue to talk about, which is trust-based relational intervention. You'll also hear me mention Dan Hughes and Bruce Perry. I would encourage you to just go Google those names and kind of see their theories in the trauma space. Don't worry, this isn't a clinical conversation, but I do mention these names and I just wanted to allow you guys to go on and do your own research. But this conversation is helpful. They have resources. They are experienced parents, and I am excited to bring them to you today. Here is Lisa and Melissa from the Adoption Connection. Hi, I'm Rebecca Britt, and this is the Stable Moments Podcast, the show where we discuss all things related to the foster care system and early childhood trauma. From foster parents, trauma experts, former foster kids, and beyond, We'll take a deep dive into the complexities of the foster care crisis in an effort to better understand how to fix it. 
Well, thank you guys for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So um, tell me a little bit about your backstory. Where are you both from and how did you guys meet? So, well, we were both in the adoption world, kind of in different Facebook groups and blogs. And I, we both maybe knew of each other's names. I dabbled in the world of a solo podcast for just a little bit and had asked Lisa to be a guest. And she had mentioned she was thinking about doing something in the adoption world in terms of podcasting. So I reached out to her and decided solo podcasting wasn't really my gig, but would she be interested in partnering to do an adoption podcast? And so I guess the rest is history. I don't, Lisa, how was your experience on your end? <laughs> well, I, yeah, I had been in the online adoption world for many, many years as a blogger and then you know, developed, became a speaker and different things. But Melissa's podcast was the first one I had ever been on. And I had, I had been hearing podcasts were important. I thought I'd like to do a podcast, but the tech aspects of it, I just thought mm. that's just one more hurdle. I don't think I really want to tackle. And then Melissa came to me and said, Hey, what would you think about doing this? So it was really a kind of a fortuitous gift that we were able to come together. But then what happened became even better because we realized that the podcast wasn't all that we wanted to do. And so then we ended up creating an entire mm. resource website and we have a community and we do all kinds, we offer courses. So we've just, and really in a fairly short amount of time, it's just grown to be this beautiful collaborative work. I love it. So tell me about how you both got into the world of adoption, foster care before you, um, before you met. Okay. All right. Well, um, I think we have a unique story in that Melissa and I are both together. We comprise the entire triad of birth parent, adoptive parent, and adoptee. So for my part, I'm both a birth first mom and um, I'm also an adoptive mom. And the adoption part came later. My husband and I were married for a number of years. We had seven children by birth and some really good friends of ours called to tell us they were adopting from Ethiopia. And it was like something just opened up completely in our hearts. And we began going down that path and we ended up adopting, I know we'll talk a little more about this later, but we ended up adopting altogether four children from Ethiopia. And then years down the road, we got a surprise teenage foster daughter and became foster parents. So that's sort of the super brief for me, yeah. Yeah, and what's your background? Well, I was a homeschooling mom for a decade, stayed home with my kids. I had a bachelor's in psychology that I did some work in mental health early, early on. And then later, due to a whole bunch of our different experiences, I became a TBRI trained practitioner. I don't know if people know that's trust-based relational intervention, the program developed by Dr. Karen Purvis and David Cross at TCU. But mostly, I consider myself just a very experienced mom. I've been parenting for 33 years and raised a lot of kids. And I know God's just given me lots of opportunities to serve with that. I love it. So I also have been in the adoption foster care world for a pretty long time. So I'm an adoptee and I was adopted from Korea at about four months old. And for whatever reason, I met and married a guy who knew that he always wanted to adopt. So that was part of our story from pretty early on. We had two kids by birth first and then adopted a toddler from Korea in 2009. 
and then adopted out of birth order three kids, not technically related, all from Ethiopia. They were 11, 13, and 14 when they came home, and they came home in 2012. And then we've had some other kind of bonus children, we'll call them, in and out of our home, not officially through foster care, but kids who have either aged out of the system or who have just needed kind of a safe place to land. Wow. When did, when was your first adoption? How many years ago? Our first adoption was 11 years ago. And Lisa, what about you? Uh, we brought our first kids home in 2007. So 13, 13 years ago. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, so, um, and Melissa, what's your background? Like, yeah. So I have a degree in mechanical engineering, <laughs> which is fantastic. Totally related. <laughs> uh, I, I got married young. And so I was already married with one child and eight months pregnant when I got my degree. And I did do some work in the field a little bit, mostly in education, mostly remotely in the early years. And then I also was a stay at home homeschool mom for a little while. And we, my husband and I, again, through our experience with our first adoption, discovered TBRI, the Trust-Based Relational Intervention, and there's a parent model called Empowered to Connect. So we became parent trainers back in 2012, and then I went on to become a certified life coach. I love it. So um, is it fair to say that foster and adoption and that whole community is part of both of your purposes, or you feel like, you know, you're calling? Oh, absolutely. I feel like... uh, when we stepped into the world of adoption as adoptive parents, that our whole lives changed. Everything changed for us on a very personal level, but I also feel that for me, it opened up incredible new opportunities because I just started writing. And from there, it's gone into so many amazing things, which I think we'll get to that a little bit later. Yeah. And I I would say that's true for us too. We kind of have servant-minded perspectives on the world and our adoption story was not easy our post-adoption story so you know once we had our kids home and the stories that they've taught us and the lessons they've taught us about adoption and uh, even just about parenting and good relationship Uh, and so you know the work of the adoption connection feels very much like a redemptive work of you know using some of the challenges that we walked through to help other parents you know who are coming after us I love it so you just touched on it. Tell, tell us about some of those first experiences or the adoption process or some of the situations that really opened your eyes to this world. And I'm guessing probably led you to some of the, the trauma work that you've, you've done. Yeah. So I, I know Lisa probably has a similar experience, but we parented neurotypical kids first, kids by birth who had really healthy attachment. And then when we brought our first son home from Korea, he did nothing that worked for the first two ever worked for him. (laughs) And so we spent a couple years, almost two and a half years, kind of feeling like we were banging our heads against the wall and just not knowing really where to turn. Um, I was really feeling like a failure as a parent. Um, I was, he was angry. I was angry. It was just not really a pretty picture. Yeah. So you sent, you spent two years banging your head against the wall. I'm guessing you felt pretty, pretty isolated and alone. Like what was your first branch out to kind of be able to get some answers and some help? 
Yeah, well, I'm a reader and a researcher, so I definitely had read some books, and so it caused me to circle back to some of those. One of them was The Connected Child, which Dr. Karen Purvis wrote, um, and then Facebook groups. Uh, there were That was really kind of the first place where I felt safe kind of saying, you know, this doesn't this isn't going the way that I thought it was going to. And it was certainly something that I had trouble coming to terms with at first because, you know, we had gathered a lot of friends and family around us, you know, in the process of bringing our son home. And for a while, I thought the process of bringing a child home internationally was the hardest part. And, you know, I would soon learn otherwise that kind of the end of that process, which finally feels like the end is really just the beginning. But Um, Yeah, I would say Facebook groups and, you know, just reading books and, you know, even 11 years ago, that has kind of grown exponentially in terms of what's available in research and brain science. And just for your personal experience, were you able to talk to your parents and ask them how their, um, how their experience differed from your experience for international adoption? Well, from a process perspective, it definitely had changed in terms of travel required requirements and stuff. Uh, in terms of parenting, you know, there was even less available for them, and they really did the best that they could. And, you know, in hindsight, my siblings and I all had challenges that, in hindsight, you know, could have used that lens of trauma. But, you know, my parents were doing the best that they could at the time. And we're still super close. We actually share house with them now. Uh, So it was, I think it was interesting for all of us to experience, you know, second generation adoption. Absolutely. I think for us, you know, we felt like we were very, very experienced parents. I think at that time, our oldest must have been nearly, maybe nearly 20, or maybe she was about 20. And We'd raised, you know, we were raising seven children and things were, I mean, you know, we had normal stuff, but things were going well. And I really thought of myself as a good mom. I felt very competent, very, um, I don't know, I just felt like it was what I loved. And I decided that's what I wanted to do, that that was my calling for that season of life. And so when we brought three children home, basically at once. Wow. Um, we, the children we brought home first, we had a little guy who was two, a baby who was five months, and then our daughter who was five and a half. And when we were in Ethiopia, we met our daughter for the first time and we knew things were going to be hard. We knew, but I think we were very optimistic and very, uh, you know, we figured we had what it was going to take because we knew it would be hard, but it was so far beyond what we ever imagined. Mm -hmm. She just had suffered so much trauma and all of that trauma spilled over onto everybody in our family in very dramatic ways. I think it just, our children were really stunned and her challenges consumed a lot of our life. And I don't know. I mean, I could tell you the whole process of why we decided to bring home one more child, but we genuinely thought that our daughter would maybe find it comforting. It was another girl from her orphanage, another Ethiopian girl. We thought that might be comforting. We were very wrong about that. Mm. Um, And so really our whole life kind of uh, began to, I don't know the right word, it kind of implode. You know, we, everything changed for us and it took a while before I admitted that I had nothing, that I could not figure out anything that was going to help. Mm 
And because I, I pulled the books off the shelves, you know, and I had read the hard books. I'd been to trainings and I couldn't find anything really that was enough for what we were living through. And so finally, we took our daughter, our five and a half year old, well, by then she was a little older, to the University of Washington Adoption Medicine Clinic. And that was the first place where I felt like somebody said, what is happening to you is very, very real. You are not causing this. Your daughter has suffered a lot. And now this is the result. And from there, we started to get a little bit of help. The other really important thing that happened for us was that I, was, I had been blogging since 2006, and when I finally started to get a little honest about our struggles, more and more people began to read. Mm-hmm. Because most of the adoption blogs out there at that point were very cheerful and very mm-hmm. surface because, of course, we wanted, to all, we wanted to encourage other people to adopt these children who were truly orphaned and in need. And... Um, but I started to get a little bit honest, and that started to change things. And one of my readers actually introduced me to Dr. Karen Purvis. I found some videos of her teaching online. They were really old. This was way back in the very beginning, really, of her. I think the Connected Childhood had just come out pretty recently. And I heard what she said, and it just spoke truth to my heart that she knew, and she believed my children could heal. And so that began our path toward learning about truly connected parenting and, you know, investing in that for our kids and our family's future. So just for clarity, um, you said there was, did you say there were three children that you were um, bringing over? We brought home three in 2007 and one more in 2008. Okay. And did, did you adopt all of them? Yes. Yeah. We, okay. we adopted all of them. And back then the process in Ethiopia was very fast. So literally they were legally adopted and then we went and met them. So with our second daughter though, we met her while we were at the orphanage picking up the other kids and we just, we just couldn't forget her, you know, and I think God just put her in our hearts and we were meant to go back for her. So we did. And how did you determine three initially? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we started out, the plan was to adopt two little boys younger than our youngest daughter. Okay. And so we, it was very sensible. And we said we would take, you know, a baby, toddlers, twin, anything, you know. And so we got referrals for our two little guys who were almost two at that point. And our youngest was an infant, you know, we brought him home a couple months later. And, um, But before we actually started that process, back when we were trying to decide if we would adopt, we started sponsoring a little girl at an orphanage for children living with HIV. And so we were sponsoring her. And then our friends, my friend who's an infectious disease specialist, went to visit that little girl's orphanage and found out that the staff there was hoping we were going to adopt her. And we didn't even know it was possible. It was 2006. Mm. You know, we just, we really didn't know much about HIV at all. We weren't planning to adopt older than our youngest, you know, and that really uh, changed everything. You know, we felt deeply compelled to adopt her. And so we did. Wow. Well, that's amazing. Um, So the, how long was it from the time that you came home with the three children to when you brought on the fourth? It was about 15 months. Okay. Yeah. So you, you were really um, 
you said God had already put that little girl in your heart. So you were kind of feeling pulled to do that. And you thought that it might bring some healing to your, your current. Yeah. Yeah, we did. I love that. It's like, it's, it's really, it's incredible. Um, So tell me for both of you, but you, if I understand correctly, you both were certified in TBRI prior to meeting each other. Um, I was a TBRI practitioner and Melissa and her husband were empowered to connect trainers. So it's the same method. Yes. Right. Sure. Sure. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Great. Before we so, met. so what you kind of already told me, but your path into that was because you needed the resources for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Born of fire. <laughs> well, well, for us, um, we're kind of go big or go home people. I mean, I guess that's how you, you know, end up bringing three teenagers home from Ethiopia all at once. Uh, so when we discovered it, I read, reread the connected child and realized that there were, tr- there was truth. Like Lisa said, it rang true with our situation. And so I found out that there was a, they call it train the trainer training in Texas and we're, we live in Maryland. Um, and so I thought, well, that's even one better. Like if we're going to know this and learn it, then we might as well know it and learn it to be able to bring it to other people. Because I felt like it was such a lifeline to us. And it was so new at the time, there was really very few places to learn about it, be trained in it. Um, so I did, I dragged my husband to Texas and we got we became trainers. <laughs> I love it. And my path was a lot different. It was sort of this organic thing that happened where I saw these videos with Dr. Purvis teaching and they just deeply impacted me. And so I mentioned them on my blog. Then I read The Connected Child and I started writing all these posts about the things I was learning. And um, then I had an opportunity to go to the Christian Alliance for Orphans conference and Dr. Purvis was speaking as well as Michael and Amy, well, Michael Monroe was Amy, I don't think was speaking, but they were the founders together with Dr. Purvis of Empowered to Connect. So after they were done speaking, of course, I was listening to every word and I went up and started talking with Michael and I said something about how I'd been writing. He said, wait a minute, what's your name? And I told him, he said, what's the name of your blog? And I said, one thankful mom. He said, we've been wondering who you are. And so because they had been seeing what I've been writing. So from there, to make it super like condensed from there, they asked me to start writing for them for Empowered to Connect. Then I started speaking with them at the Empowered to Connect conferences. I got to know Karen and the sort of the long, the long thing that happened was I ended up uh, giving, sharing an idea I had for a book with Dr. Purvis and we wrote a book together that's coming out this summer. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. So, uh, but I should say in the process of that, when I started speaking for Empowered to Connect, Karen said, I think you and Russ better come to TBRI. So we went and did the training so that I actually knew what I was talking about and I could help people more. Um, Yeah. So you were, uh, Melissa was talking about, she's kind of a go big or go home. And this is something that's like in the DNA of a lot of foster adoptive parents, right? Like when I would serve um, the parents at the stable moments program, like it was more, common for a 15 passenger van to come up the driveway than it was for even an SUV. Like, Mm -hmm. so, and it's like these people with hearts have these big hearts. And, um, 
I just, it's funny because it's like this common theme. I'm sure you guys notice that in your work as well. Yeah, absolutely. People are, you have to be very passionate and very determined to want to parent large numbers of children and children who are coming to you from all kinds of different backgrounds. I mean, it, it takes, I think there is somewhat of a, what would you say, Melissa? Is it like a tenacity, a perseverance? There's something that runs through as a cord in a lot of us. Yeah, I think, um, or we're just, you know, idealists or something. I don't know. Uh, yes. <laughs> always hopeful, always hopeful. <laughs> yeah, and I feel this sense of like, if not me, then who? You know, like yeah. there isn't enough people stepping up um, for orphan kids in our community and so when you've made the decision and you're in the world and you're thrown in that world and it's just so apparent to you how high the need is i i do feel this sense of like if if not me then who and um i i think that sometimes when parents have that perspective they also have trouble with boundaries or feeling okay with saying, you know, I'm just going to do this part. So how do you help parents that are like, I feel guilty because I feel done or I want to be, I want to take a break from fostering or um, they're feeling like they need to maybe put some boundaries up and not go so big. Well, you know, Dr. Purvis herself was famous for saying that there should only be one kid from a hard place at a time in a family. And I don't think she said it loud enough or enough or early enough in a lot of our journeys. We just didn't believe her. Yeah. We just didn't believe her, Melissa. <laughs> That's true. Um, and so I think more than that, we, the Adoption Connection seems to attract families who are done for different reasons, right? They're in the midst of really, really hard and they have realized that they can't do any more than they're already doing. And quite frankly, they're probably in over their heads with where they are. And so we really are passionate about giving parents resources in the post-adoption space that help them feel like they can even continue on doing what they have already in their homes because it is a lot. and. Um, and it did take, you know, almost crisis point for me to realize I had to draw my line in the sand and say, okay, we're really, really done. And we're not in crisis anymore. And you're right, like the heartstrings pull, you know, quickly and it can be hard. But of course, we also know a lot more about how much care and how much energy a child with really high needs who has suffered early trauma takes. And so that in itself, I think, can help parents say, um, you know, I don't have to say yes to everyone. I don't have to rescue the world, but that it, it does take an entire family and an entire village even to envelop one child into your home. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think for us, when I talk to parents about this, I really encourage them to look at the needs of the children that they already have. Mm -hmm. And their needs are vast. Some of these children, they're... They, both their emotional needs and things in the home, plus the number of services that they need are significant. And I really, I, I also, from my own experience and my own mistakes, I'm concerned for the, the healthier kids in the family and how they're going to fare while the siblings with the most needs are, are being cared for. And so I really encourage parents, it's okay to say no, it's okay to say we're done or we're done unless 
something happens to completely change our minds. Mm -hmm. And even in our fostering situation, we um, had a surprise teen foster daughter. She was supposed to stay for a few months and she stayed two and a half years until she graduated from high school. And, you know, they wanted us to continue. And of course, they especially wanted us to continue because we had taken teens. But I just knew my family needed some time. And so we actually let our, our license close, which was sad, but also right for my family. Yeah, I, I worked as a, my, my background as a post-adoption case manager. And unfortunately, it wasn't like, oh, you have signed on the dotted line. So now you get a case manager. It was like, you know, they were ready to give the kids back two years after their adoption because they had no support and they weren't given any um, services after the fact. And then it was like, oh, well, you can't really do that. So here's the number of a post-adoption case manager in your county. So had I just gotten to be with them right from the get-go, I feel like a lot of uh, a lot of this would have been avoided. But my job was just trying to, to go in and promote permanence within the home. And I'd be amazed at how many times they would be working with their one child or working with their two children that they had. And they were really struggling. And I was going into the home and doing some, uh, some home-based care with them. And they would be saying, I don't know if I can do this anymore. And these are all the things that are going on. And I'd be just trying to get them some respite, you know, some time out of the house. And then the next call would be, so we're taking in two boys. And I'm like, no, wait, <laughs> first of all, who called them? Um, because I remember like calling, calling the Department of Children and Families and saying, can you take this family off your list for a minute? Can you not like call them in the middle of the night and, you know, give them ideas <laughs> um, and just let them breathe for a moment. But it was amazing how often I had to kind of say like, can we just stop and focus on these kids um, and kind of give them the permission to only have the one or the two in their home. Um, so I, I was wondering what your experience was, because I, I typically, it, go big or go home is the perfect way to kind of to wrap mm -hmm. that up. Is It always came from a place of like, yeah, I know that we did, that we were, we've been like really stressing and having a hard time, but like, this is what we're put on this earth to do. And like, there's a kid out there that needs us. So um, kind of giving them the permission, like you, you are actually doing what you're, you're currently doing exactly what you want to be doing. Um, and let's work with this situation. So yeah, that's, that's, um, that's interesting. Do you find that people get hooked up with post-adoption services I mean, I know that it's different, not only in every state, but in every county. But do you feel like that's something more readily available with the families you work with? Well, I think it depends. I think with international adoption, it's nearly non-existent. You know, I mean, our agency, we worked with two different agencies. Both of them are now closed. One, neither were in our state. You know, so we had no actual post-adoption support really we had to find it and that's how we moms started to find each other right because we felt like we were out here all alone and it's scary and it's isolating and you know you feel so uncertain because all your instincts don't seem to be right and nothing seems to be going well and somehow we started to find each other online and way back in the day it was through blogs you know people we used to have conversations in the comments of blogs mm -hmm. that doesn't really happen so much anymore we have them all in 
Facebook groups and sometimes Instagram. But um, with the advent of Facebook groups, we've been able to really find support that has come up organically. And I think that's probably one of the things that we love most about the Adoption Connection is there are people who have no adoption support. And, you know, hardly anybody has it at three in the morning when your child is raging and things have gone terribly, but there's probably somebody online who is there for you. So it's, it's been kind of an organic thing for me. And, and I would say post-adoption has come a long way in the past decade, but it still has a long way to go. And as Lisa mentioned, in almost every state and county, if you did bring home children through a private infant adoption or an international adoption, so basically anything else other than foster care, then a lot of the post-adoption resources are not available to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's different in every state, and some states do kind of wrap all of those families in. But I think even more importantly, as we've worked with families in groups and courses and coaching, is moms have really valued the voice of experience, and a lot of agencies that are providing post-adoption services aren't able to provide the level of empathy and compassion for the situation that exhausted, tired, fragile mamas really need. And and furthermore, it's really hard to go back to your agency who you kind of, you know, begged to place a child in your home. I mean, not begged, but you jumped through all the hoops and the home study and all of the things to go back to that same agency and, you know, admit that you don't like your child anymore or you feel like you want to give up. Um, that doesn't feel like a safe place to go um, with all of those feelings. And so I think this peer-to-peer support model has worked really, really well for families and for moms um, to feel like, you know, someone is going to understand what they're going through. Yeah, those are, those are great, great points. I know that um, as a post-adoption case manager, um, being in my 20s and never having my own bio kids, let alone never going through the process, I mean, I, I, it was, it was difficult to have not parenting advice, but therapeutic parenting advice and, um, <laughs> and even to take myself seriously. Um, but tell us about the adoption connection and who your audience is and what you offer them. Well, of course, we offer our podcast, which is so much fun for us, and we bring on all kinds of different guests. One fun thing we do on our podcast is we'll take questions from our people, our listeners, and sometimes it'll just be the two of us, and we'll answer their questions, and that's really rewarding, too, because we know we're speaking right to an issue that's important to people. Um, you know, we've created courses that I think are just wonderful one in particular we have a free compassion challenge and actually melissa will probably talk a little more about that when she's talking but we've you know we've created a safe place for people they can reach out to us they interact we have a private facebook group that's just a a free group and people are incredibly supportive of one another there they share ideas and resources and support and i'm really happy we've been able to create that for people so You know, we don't know what the future holds. We see ourselves probably creating more and more resources for adoptive moms in particular because we want them to know that they really are good moms because moms lose hope and they lose all confidence in themselves. And so we want to encourage them that they actually have what they need and we're just going to bolster them up, maybe give them some more tools, some good information to help them understand their kids and really give them the the courage and endurance to persevere and even find joy 
in this journey of being a mom? Yeah. So we have the compassion challenge, which we designed really for parents who felt like they were at the end of the rope. And Lisa and I kind of came across the work of a really important child psychologist, uh, Dr. Daniel Hughes, and he's written extensively on trauma and therapeutic parenting. And he introduced something called blocked care. And basically, we know that our kids who have suffered relationship trauma and lost relationship, you know, get really self-protective of themselves. And we know that that's where a lot of their behaviors come from. Um, But, you know, the same thing happens to us as parents when we're parenting really hard kids who struggle to attach to us because they've been hurt in the past by other relationships. And so it kind of the gift that keeps on giving, unfortunately, then our nervous systems, you know, without us even realizing it subconsciously are thinking that relationship doesn't feel all that great. You know, I think I'm going to try to protect you from it. So we start to kind of disengage emotionally from it as a self-protective mechanism. And I had no idea that that was a thing. And so when I was starting to feel really apathetic towards our whole situation and our most challenging child, uh, I would feel those feelings of like doneness. And then I would immediately feel guilt and shame, you know, that, you know, we had signed up for this. We knew it was going to be hard and I wasn't, you know, and I didn't feel like I could see it all the way to completion. And uh, so the compassion challenge really helps moms give words to and brain science to some of that, uh, those feelings. Mm-hmm. And then we have a 30 day course that we walk them through um, called from apathy to empathy. And it gives them practical steps every single day to kind of intentionally push back against that blocked care so that we can stay in the game. So we can continue to love our kids well and, you know, do the hard things. And so that's something that we are really passionate about because it's not being talked about in a lot of other adoption spaces. And so I think that's really the crux of where, how people are kind of finding us is through the compassion challenge, which is free. And then the, if people choose to continue, then they can join us on that 30 day course, which is a paid program. I love that um, the compassion challenges for people at the end of their rope, because there's a lot of foster adoptive groups that I've snuck my way into just because I'm, you know, interested in being in the community. And, you know, there's a lot of people offering a lot of great resources, but I can just imagine if I was at the end of my rope and being like, I don't, I don't want to hear about time in anymore. And like, I don't want to hear about like, Oh, maybe he needs to be rocked and had like given a bottle. Like who's like, I need to be rocked. Um, so I'm having a space that you can opt, like that you can be like, yep. End of my rope. Like that's me. Mm -hmm. Um, and get those needs met because like, like you said, so much shame and guilt comes up just from admitting that we're at the end of our rope or that we're done. And like when people offer really great therapeutic advice to somebody that's done, it's really, it's not helpful at that point because that's not the place they need to be spoken to, right? They don't need more tools for their toolbox. They need to like help themselves. So I love that that's your entry point. Mm -hmm. Right, because if we can help moms, that will help their children. Like Melissa is really, really good at helping parents with behavior issues and stuff, but she knows and I know that we have to help the parents first because if they if they are completely exhausted and out of hope, we can give them all the tools in the world, but they aren't going to be able to use them. And they've, we've got to help them regain that strength in order to then parent as well as they can. 
Yeah, and I think that I really got a huge heart for parents um, when I realized that I was blaming them. Like as a social worker, I would go into homes and I would give them therapeutic parenting techniques and then I would come back and, you know, they'd be doing nothing that I said or whatever. And I'd go back to a supervisor and I'd say like, oh, like they, they don't want to learn these things or they're, you know, they're into their punitive parenting that they've always done and he should just listen. I felt so much empathy for the parents or I mean for the kids, mm -hmm. but zero for the parents. And that's when mm -hmm. I had great supervisor. I actually got to work with Bruce Perry and I got to work with Dan Hughes for some of um, that time. So I was really lucky at that time that we were consulting on some cases with them. But um, so I got great supervision. And what I learned from my supervisors was like, Hey, Rebecca, how about you try using all of those techniques on the parents? Like, how about you talk to them? <laughs> yeah. Like, this yeah, is, give them, give them voice, right? <laughs> exactly. Like, this is tough and you're going through a lot of stuff and like, just all the things that you would do for a kid, like do for those parents. And I was like, like light bulb really went off. Um, mm. And then I really felt a need. So I do train the trainer and I, I train people how to start a stable moments program at their places. And I'll hear the same thing. And they're not necessarily social workers um, because I feel like you can teach every single person in the community how to interact better with these parents and interact better with kids. Like we don't all need to be clinicians, but I hear the same things of like, ah, oh, this parent comes up and I'm like, I can't be more of an advocate for the parent because I did that same thing of, judging the parent and having all the empathy in the world for the kid and not parent and even the bio parent, whoever it is, like having all the empathy in the world. And that's really the position I take. But, um, but yeah, unless you treat that parent first and give them healing and give them a voice and make them feel a little bit validated and they're exactly what they're feeling and this monumental task that they took on, um, you're not going to get, anywhere like you can feel bad for the kid all you want but if if you're gonna be oh I can't even imagine if you're gonna be a social worker that enters their home and is leaving disgruntled like that's sad for me so anyway I feel like through those experiences I've wanted to help teachers and other social workers and other people um, that work with these families understand the experience of the parent because I just don't think that they have, maybe their kids do, but they have very few advocates for them. Absolutely. So I'm sure you guys do that with, with your work as well. I don't know if you're able to like go out and, and Lisa, you do speaking. I don't know if you do, Melissa. I know that you do the training. Yeah, you we, okay. we both do together and separately. And so that's kind of the other part is, you know, getting into the community and, you know, we're kind of with you, you know, really passionate about schools and workplaces and like I said really good relationship principles mm -hmm. um, this is how we try to view the lens of all of our kids even our kids by birth now because we do know that behavior tells a lot about what's going on with the nervous system and and where our kids are in terms of their stress even if they haven't had early trauma mm -hmm. well and we know that children their ability to learn is greatly diminished when they're dysregulated and very, very stressed. So think about these moms, you know, they're very stressed. They're trying to hold it together. Life feels very difficult and chaotic. And if we just try to teach them all these tips and techniques, they, they don't have the ability to learn either. They really, they need our empathy. They need us to listen. They need us to say, this is really hard. I can see that. 
Yeah. And I think it's all of that being able to come to a place where you can say I'm done and you can say like, I need care right now. And also saying like, no, there's this very specific behavior that we're having an issue with and I'm ready to be therapeutic and jump in mm -hmm. and be there for them. But I don't know how, like having that spectrum of services is really helpful. And I do think we're getting closer to holistic care, family care, seeing a whole unit. Um, but it's a lot more complex in um, foster placements and with adoption. So I love what you guys are doing. Um, tell me about some of your biggest wins as far as working with parents and like some learning experiences for you or some really rewarding experiences you've had working with parents. So, you know, whenever we do a call for testimonials, when we're promoting something like the compassion challenge or from apathy to empathy, and we have people just verbalize the transformation that they've been on um, from feeling like they were at the end of the rope to seeing hope or feeling feeling compassion and empathetic towards their child for the first time in years. Uh, that's super rewarding. To say to a mom, you know, you're a good mom, and they just break down weeping because they feel so judged. They feel like they're failing every day. And to be able to say that to them and mean it, you know, like we know the moms who are coming to the Adoption Connection are really good moms. They are trying. They want better for their families. And we just want to meet them with empathy and understanding. And when we do, I think that alone, feeling heard, feeling understood, it just, it breaks down walls so that then we can help them with their more specific needs too. I love it. I love that. What is the uh, name of the book, Lisa, that you said is going to be coming now? Is that something that you want to Oh, promote? I would love to talk about it. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> yeah. Tell us the name. Tell us what it's about. Okay. It's called The Connected Parent, Real Life Strategies, for building trust and attachment. We had several versions of the subtitle, so I had to remember that. Yes, it's Real Life Strategies for Building Trust and Attachment. Um, Dr. Purvis and I wrote it over many years. We, we started writing it in 2012, and you know, she had cancer. We went through some really, really difficult things in our family, including losing one of our daughters, and then her cancer came back. But through all of those years, we continued to write, and it was, I would say close when she passed away and we were able to take her, her drafts and uh, her former assistant came on and helped take some of her drafts and helped me finish. And so the book is being published by Harvest House. It's coming out July 7th. It's available for pre-order on Amazon. And, you know, it's Dr. Purvis's final written work. So I feel deeply, deeply honored to have written this work with her. And I, I hope it is tremendously helpful because it's it's the joining of a mom's voice and a developmental psychologist's voice and we go through every chapter side by side and it's i i think it's beautiful oh, i love that and what a what a perfect um sequel if you want to call it to the connected child yeah, yeah. i love it um, okay, so you said that we can find you guys on the website. I just want to make sure um, before I ask you the final question that you guys are, um, people can find you anywhere podcasts are, right? 
Yes. Yeah, anywhere podcasts are, and we're the Adoption Connection on all the social media platforms. So you can find us on Facebook, on Instagram, and we would love to connect with anyone who really feels like they need more post-placement support. Yeah, and if you're any of my Stable Moments locations listening to this, or if you just happen to be somebody that is related to this space but not a parent yourself, share it on your own um, social medias and, and share it on your own website so that the parents that you serve um, have this resource. It, it's really helpful. I know anytime that I got a parent, especially like at a Stable Moments location where they're just happening to bring their foster or adopted kid to hang out with horses, it's like they might not have ever heard of trauma or that there is a community out there. Um, so it's always helpful when, when somebody can give them those resources. So I ask everybody that comes on the podcast this question, and I'd love to hear from you guys. What do you think will help us end our foster care or orphan crisis? Mm, it's such a good question. So Lisa and I both come from faith backgrounds, and I don't know the exact statistics now, but just a couple of years ago, you know, the number of churches in the U.S. outnumbered the number of foster kids by about three to one. And we know that taking on a child from a hard place is a very big task to undertake. And so we don't promote adoption and foster care lightly, uh, just because we do understand what a big undertaking it is. But if, you know, three church, three church fulls of people would wrap around just one foster child, um, at least in the U.S., we could eradicate the foster care situation here. And I think for my part, the most important thing is preventing these children from ever coming into care in the first mm -hmm. place. You know, the more we can offer support and education and in-home intervention to families who are at risk of their children being removed, how much better is that, you know? And I have a friend who's a caseworker who teaches TBRI to parents who are reunifying with their children. Mm. And, oh, I want to do that. I mean, how incredible to help these parents have what they need to care for their children. And it's just, um, you know, if we can stop it before it happens, I think that's mm. the, the best thing. Secondly, I think we have to make being a foster parent, a better experience for people. So we have foster parents who can stay in it and give consistency for these children. Um, you know, it's, it's really messy and complicated. I had no idea what I was stepping into when I became a foster mom because we hadn't been trained yet. We were considered a, a kinship, fictive kin placement. And when I began to realize the numbers of people and all these different jobs and who they were, it was overwhelming to me. So I think the more we can provide support for the foster parents and streamline it and make it workable for them, the more successful they're going to be. And hopefully we're going to see even more children be reunified and have support from those foster families. You know, we're really fostering the whole family, not just the child. Yeah. yeah. And, and I'm hearing more and more foster parents taking on that perspective of fostering the whole family mm -hmm. and, um, you know, loving on the bio parents and trying to support the bio parents because they don't have as much support as you would think to help them reunify. And really the, the common thread in, in both your answers to help kids not come into care and support foster families is just greater awareness and support of the general community. Mm -hmm. And if, bio parents felt like they could report 
things, if they felt like they could say, we're having trouble, can you help? And they wouldn't be judged or there wouldn't be an investigation right away. And they would get the support that they need. Or even as neighbors, we were like, it's rather than judging and saying, I would have put a you know, coat on my kid <laughs> if it was this, you know, 50 degrees out. Um, if we walked over and we're like, hey, do you need help? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I hope, it's my hope and belief that with the more polarized we become, we're actually going to be pushed more back to our communities. Like we have to rely on our neighbors, right? Um, and I, I hope that that's um, the direction we're headed because I feel like once you, you know, have the support of your church or you have the support of your neighborhood, then all those things we're talking about becoming a foster parent or reaching out for help when you're facing addiction or you're just having any issues as a bio parent um, doesn't feel as scary um, if you have that support there. So, well, you guys are certainly doing your part in building the community and building the support and making people feel loved and heard like, and like they have a purpose and a place and that they belong. And, and we know that that's not just important for the kids, but super important for the families. So I really want to thank you for the work that you're doing. Um, I, I just, I love it. And the parents are, I have such a huge spot in my heart for the parents. So thank you. And thank you for your podcast and putting out content and making courses. Like not everybody has the time or the acumen or the, you know, desire to do stuff like that. And they need, they need trailblazers like you guys to to lead the way. So I want to thank you. And I will go ahead and pre-order your book and I'll put up all the, all the cool stuff on, uh, on the website and on our social and share you out. Thank you so much for having us. This has been really fun to be on the other side of the microphone, so to speak. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Rebecca, thank you for the work that you're doing with families. Uh, We know that there's a lot of good work and powerful work being done in the equine space. And so we appreciate all the people that are coming alongside us. And and we, again, feel really honored that this could be a part of our story, um, being able to help other families. Well, keep rocking it out, you guys, and I'll see you when I see you. All right. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Bye. Bye. I just love talking to them, and I love more that Melissa and Lisa exist and are a resource for foster and adoptive families. Here are three takeaways from our conversation that I think were particularly important. Foster and adoptive families are typically go big or go home types, but it's okay to say no or to set boundaries for your family. If you have a kid in your home currently or you have had one before, you already have followed your calling. It's okay to focus on the family you have now, whatever that looks like. Takeaway number two, peer-to-peer works. As Melissa said, it's difficult or may feel not safe to call the agency for help with a kid that you've worked so hard to get. Real moms have a great capacity for empathy and real life experiences that inform their practical advice. It's no wonder that parents look to peers for help. And finally, parents have to be helped first. All the tools in the world aren't helpful for a parent that doesn't have their needs met. Parents need empathy. They need advocates before we teach them or give them tools. So make sure that if you're a parent, 
you're reaching out to hopefully get your needs met. You're going to places like the Adoption Connection that understand and have that empathy for you. And if you're not a foster and adoptive parent, but you're an ally, then make sure that you're being that empathetic support. It was so nice sitting down with Melissa and Lisa. I hope you guys gained something from it. Join Adoption Connection, check out their podcast, share it with your families that you serve, whoever you are listening to this. If you can share this podcast, you can go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. It always helps. I can't wait to talk to you guys next week when we sit down with Robin Gobble, who is a licensed clinical social worker and a psychotherapist who promotes human-informed connection rather than trauma-informed connection. It's going to be a great conversation. I can't wait to see you guys there.